am super excited about today's topic in particular. Um, and as your co-host, um, I am Michelle Zeman. And Mackenzie Welch, your main host. I am a little under the weather today, guys. So Michelle's going to be really, uh, really taking this episode for you guys. Yeah, thank you so much. So today we're actually talking about um, ABA and sex and how we address um, how we address sex in ABA. Um, so I'm really excited to introduce Landa Fox. Um, she is our guest tonight. And Landa, um, before we dive into this topic, tell us a little bit about how you got into this field, but also to tell us about how this became a passion for you. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess how I got into this field and my excitement for being here are kind of start with the same story and like ask anybody that knows me and they'd be like, yeah, well, yeah, she'll talk about sex for a while. <laughs> um, and so that's, that's, I guess, how the passion developed. Um, so I... Well, I was, I was, in, I've always been interested in sort of sex education or sexual health topics. Like even when I was like quite young, um, my mom was a nurse, which I feel like is a pretty common story for people who are get into sexual health or are, like comfortable talking about bodies and stuff. Is like their one of their parents was in the medical profession, was in our medical profession, um, and so I thought about that for a while, but. I don't know, you know, when you're younger, and you don't really know, like, how you get specific jobs, or like, you don't know the jobs are available. Um, and so up here in Canada, where I'm from, we and she was bigger in the States, too. And she actually, like, um, recently passed away, Sue Johansson, who had this show called The Sunday Night Sex Show. And I would watch it when I was growing up. And, you know, people that I knew in sort of like late like elementary school, early high school would be like, you're going to be the next Sue Johansson. But like, how do you become a sex educator? Like nobody really knows. Um, and then I ended up start, got into kind of like the field of ABA, like completely by accident when I was in my undergrad. And so um, that, and that was in 2003. So I've been like working in ABA for 20 years. Um, but I just, wow. I just sort of forgot. I know when people are like, how long have you been doing this? I'm like 20 years. And then they always say, you're not old enough. And I'm like, thank you. <laughs> but in fact, I am. I mean, yeah, I started like skin. pretty young, I guess. Like that was, you know, when I was like 20, I started as a, what would now be called an RBT, but was then not that. Right. Um, and I, uh, so then I kind of like forgot about the sexual health thing for a while, um, or that that was like an interest or like a passion that I had, um, because I didn't see its relevancy for my work, um, which is a problem. And we can talk a little bit about why I kind of fell into that thinking, um, if we want to, but then I, um, about seven years ago, I started to sort of realize that a, that was a passion that I had and I really wanted to get back into it. And I thought like, well, maybe I will not, you know, air quotes, do ABA anymore. I will, maybe I'll like become a teacher and do sex education for like general education classes. Um, and then I was sort of like, wait, but like the students that I'm working with need this information too. So why don't I just combine these two things? And like no one was getting the information that they needed or the help that they needed. And so I was like, well, I'm comfortable talking about this. I know a fair amount about it. Uh, why don't I just sort of like increase my education 
um, in the area of sexual health. And then, so I got my sexual health educator certification through an organization uh, here in Canada. And then just sort of, yeah, started combining uh, the two things. And here we are. Wow, that is, that is incredible. Um, and I'm really excited um, to learn more about this too. Um, you know, when we were talking the other day, we had talked about how there are some things that we as BCBAs teach that are considered sex ed. But I don't know that everybody really knows that, you know, some of the things that we do teach happen to be sexual education. So can you go into detail about what we are doing to sort of promote that? Yeah, this is like one of my most recent like favorite things to talk about, or I've given some conference presentations about it as well. Um, and I think if, you know, thinking back to when I was sort of saying like, oh, like I, you know, wasn't really aware that I should be teaching sex ed. And but I was teaching lots of things that like contribute to um, sexual what I, I try to call it like sexual health and safety education, because mm-hmm. um, I think that you know, often that's a, a way into for some of these conversations is, you know, if you say that you're teaching sex or teaching sexuality, people have a lot of big feelings about what that means. But mm-hmm. if you say that you're teaching health and safety yeah, skills, sure. usually people are like all over that. Like they, those are the values they have for their yeah. kids. If you're working with parents with like younger kids or values that people have for themselves, if they're in their later teens or, or adults, right. People want to, you know, feel safe and, and feel healthy. So, um, just phrasing it that way it could be a good start if some BCBAs are like, how do I even get started? Um, but yeah, like I think that BCBAs are probably doing more than they think that they are. So like some of the kind of foundational skills that I think of that like most people have probably got in whatever sort of like ABA program they're doing with 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 students um one uh, so a couple of ideas that i talk about a lot is like one of them is like accepting no so you know mm-hmm. if people are listening they probably can think of like if they don't actively have that program in for a client right now they can probably think of a time when they've worked on accepting no right a kid mans for something you know that reinforcer is not available and so somebody has to say no or you know i think unfortunately sometimes people are saying no just just to say no because it's inconvenient for them but like that's a separate episode Um, (laughs) and so like if you think about it like accepting no to like immediate tangibles and we you know we start small with like you know immediate like accepting no for like a microsecond and then kind of build that up and kind of shape it so um, people can accept no for longer periods of time or um, like for bigger reinforcers, right? Like larger magnitude of like reinforcing value of the things. And so like that's connected to sexual health and safety because if you can't accept like immediate tangibles, the chances that you can accept like more complex social no's when yeah. people are gr- when people grow up, right? Is like not, you know, not gonna be strong or accepting rejection. And that could be like in friendships um, or sexual relationships. And accepting no in sexual situations, again, like I think this is something that consent educators more yeah. recently have started talking about that, like graciously accepting a no is a skill that lots of people could work on. 
but totally. we're teaching our like right. younger young kids to yeah. graciously accept a no um and that's hard and they need to work on it and it's a skill right um and so yeah. you know people don't think that those things are related but like they so oh are. absolutely and i yeah. love that you you tied tied the two of those in in together so nicely yeah yeah and you know it's really interesting that you bring up accepting no because you know a lot of us myself included i'm not going to lie when i think of accepting no i'm typically thinking of accepting you know no to specific items or activities that are not feasible in the moment but then you bring up accepting no in terms of like rejection and in terms of relationships and so um to follow up how do you teach that you know it's okay to be rejected every once in a while how do you teach that almost like tolerance response of being told no with relation to um, them trying to build a relationship or build a friendship with somebody. Yeah. I mean, it's complicated. And I was going to say that's so complex. (laughs) Yeah. And like big shout out to individualization. So like everything that I talk about, like whenever I give like a conference presentation or a pro, like a professional development or a CEU or, or like I'm on a podcast or whatever, I always try to say like, you know, any individual case is going to be kind of like nuanced and, and different. One thing that I also, you know, just kind of want to sneak in here is that we often put, especially when it comes to sexual health and um, uh, like this kind of topic, we have expectations for disabled people, autistic people, neurodivergent people that are often like much more stringent and strict Mm -hmm. than a neurotypical peer, right? We don't let people that are disabled make mistakes. And there's some valid reasons for that, right? Like they can more frequently experience all sort of all sorts of sort of marginalization and ostracization because of some of those things. So, you know, I, I understand, but like people make mistakes, and we also set these like mastery criteria yeah. ish that, that are, are like unrealistic. Yeah. Like you know, yeah. like Michelle, yeah. you were just saying, like, well, you know, when you think about even yourself accepting no, like no grown ass sorry can we curse i curse yeah <laughs> i love that you put that element of realness in there yeah, yeah. Like, no grown adult um like accepts no really well a hundred percent of the time but what healthy well-adjusted yeah. i air hard air i have to say like air quotes all the time when i'm on a podcast because i, I use it as a <laughs> like a non-verbal signifier um yeah So, like, I think we have to be realistic about, like, well, what are we expecting the person to do to accept a no? So that's not, like, accepts no and, like, is happy and it, like, masks their feelings, right? It's, like, but what are some things that you can do to accept a no that's, like, you could offer an alternative choice, like, as the person who's heard no, you need to be ready to hear a no to that alternative. You also need to hear that, like, I'm finished having this conversation and I don't want to negotiate, and so, you have to be open to that as well but like offering up another option of another thing that you want to do or or whatever is like fairly reasonable um working on like coping strategies gonna say it'd be interesting to kind of like blend the because that's that's ultimately what it is you have to kind of learn how to stand there and be like this is not comfortable so what am I going to do about it 
Yeah, which is another skill that, like I say, is also like a, a sexual health and safety mm-hmm. skill is like teaching self-regulation skills and impulse yeah. control skills, right? Yeah. So when somebody says no, yeah. you need to know that, like, what are you going to do to control the impulse to do it anyway, right? And this is like, again, like kind of trigger warning, but like how sexual assault happens, right? Yeah. People don't accept a no. They don't have any impulse control. When they want something, they want it now. They deserve it because... XYZ factors or socialization or, or whatever. But, you know, I work with a lot of people, unfortunately, it, it, it becomes very, I'm called to help when it's very reactive, right? Somebody's mm-hmm. done something that is illegal or has had a major impact yeah. on themselves as a, as a person or another human. And, and then I sort of ask the questions of like, well, can they accept no to being told, told no to like mm-hmm. activities, food, you know, a, attention from people. And it's like, no. And do they have, they ever worked on impulse control skills? No. You know, do they have coping strategies or self-regulation right. skills that don't involve, you know, other people that they can do on their own? No. It's like, okay, well, we're not going to fix the quote unquote, fix the sexual behavior problem if we can't develop some of those other skills. And like, those are hard skills to develop. And so like my, I think the reason why I've started talking about this more is like my big push is that like, these are things that people can do in like early intervention programs and school based programs that can really be helpful to people like me. Um, if they're working on some of those skills and like, then I might not even get those referrals, right. Cause those clients have developed those goals. Um, and I think like keeping some of these goals going, and I know that there's various like external factors, like insurance needs to see that like programs are being mastered or whatever. I I don't have a really good grasp on how insurance works because that's not how we fund services in Canada, but like, that's my read of the situation. (laughs) Um, and so, but like keeping accepting no programs going, keeping um, like impulse control skills, self-regulation skills, waiting skills, like all of those programs, yeah. instead of mastering it when a kid's five and being like, they can wait for two minutes for a tangible reinforcer, right. like what's the next step of waiting right. that you could add in for that kid? Yeah. And it's going to be super right. helpful when they need to wait for bigger stuff. Totally. And it's, it's really, it's really like so great to hear you know about the different forms of waiting and kind of like evolving from you know just waiting from like a tangible to waiting for a variety of things you know waiting under certain contexts under certain circumstances um so i'm really glad that you brought that up and so um so one of the things that i was curious about too Um, You brought up something that really sort of hit home for me, and I am going to just put a trigger warning out there, Um, but I recently learned that nine out of 10 women, um, nine out of 10 autistic women are likely to get sexually assaulted in their lifetime. And as an autistic woman myself, that is very scary to think about. Mm -hmm. Um, So that being said, um, how do we teach our, not even just our autistic women, but our autistic people, you know, um, you know, the certain like consent, like how you, you and I have talked about like sexual topography. So how do we teach that? Um, and also in a way that's age appropriate for the clients that we serve. Mm -hmm. Mm. Yeah. And I mean, you know, thankfully I think like this conversation is 
you know, really at the forefront now and um, like within ABA and, and maybe just like parenting, like kind of in general as well, right, where um, this kind of like prioritizing assent, I mean, that's in our ethics code now, right? So like, Get out your, yeah. you know, section section two, yep. section 2.11. I like wrote, I wrote that down. I don't have it like, that one I think I actually probably do have memorized because I refer to it all the time. But yeah. um, we're like, we have to prioritize assent, right? And so like doing child-led approaches to learning, um, which doesn't mean that kids get to do whatever they want all the time, but there's like safe and healthy and appropriate boundaries that are set for a reason. And like, obviously, younger kids, you know, and depending on where their receptive language skills are at, you can't always describe the reason why you have to say no to something. But definitely for like teenagers that I've worked with, autistic adults that I've worked with, you know, across the board, again, individualization, but say that like, if you can't tell me why I can't do something or why you're saying no, it like doesn't make sense to me. And most of the time, the reason why people are saying no is honestly because like they don't want to, or it makes them uncomfortable or something, which like that could be a valid reason, particularly if we're talking about like interactions where it could be sexual or there's touching involved. Like I think that is a skill to work on and, and working on But if you don't say that that's the reason, then we're not really teaching people that like, well, a valid reason to not touch somebody else is when they say that they don't want to be touched. Yeah. Yeah. That's fine. Absolutely. And, you Uh, know. Oh, sorry. (laughs) Go ahead. I was going to say, yeah, because, you know, I'm thinking about it from just like a um, safety point of view and just, you know, thinking about the clients that we serve, you know autistic people and neurodivergent people in general tend to be more vulnerable and they, you know, they may not know the difference between um, a situation that is, um, you know, that can potentially lead to that sort of danger. Mm -hmm. Um, But that being said, you know, one of the other things that I would really love to know about is what are some barriers that you've ran into when it comes to teaching about sexual education, sexual health? Yeah, I mean, a lot, a few. Um, There's definitely, um, you know, one barrier that I think is, you know, a big problem with which part of why I love doing stuff like these conversations and try to do a lot of like professional development sort of stuff is because, the uh, the main reason I think um, why people don't teach sex education is because they don't know what to teach because they had bad sex education yep. or like it was a topic that culturally or religion or just in their family of origin unit for whatever variety of reasons was yeah, like, like a topic that you're told not yeah. to talk about. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's so if you don't know. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 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 Then. Yeah. You know, so I think it's just it's just a sort of a, like a ball that gets kind of like passed around. And then, you know, parents don't feel comfortable because they don't know what to say. And so they don't talk to the BCBA or the RBT yeah. or the teacher. And, 
you know, then it's sort of like, well, people think schools should teach sex education, but then when schools try to teach sex education, certain people say that they shouldn't do that. And so it's just sort of this thing that gets responsibility gets passed around and then nobody does it. And then the person who suffers the consequence of that is the the child or the client or, and, you know, to your point, Michelle, the, like the autistic or disabled clients who are very vulnerable um, because of, for a variety of reasons why they, they yep. might be targeted by somebody who wants to uh, like harm a, a child or youth or, or even like adults are, are uh, equally vulnerable, particularly those with like physical or intellectual disabilities. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and it's, it's a very scary situation to even like fathom, you know, it's hard to fathom the fact that, you know, we have such vulnerable populations, you know, and, um, you know, I've I've actually done like a little bit of digging just within like um like seeing reports out there of like people getting reported and I've seen like you know people with intellectual disabilities and physical disabilities um run into um care providers who just overstep their boundaries. And yeah. that's scary to even think about, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. And I think that like, I mean, fear, like when you're bringing up the idea of fear like that, I think is a is another barrier. Right. And I think the fear that stems from the first problem, right, which is lack of knowledge and lack of knowledge leads to fear. And so it's scary. It's scary to think about those things that, you know, to to talk about. But it's important that we do for that sort of protection. And but we we misplace our fear often. Right. So you know, when you're talking about care providers and things like that, like, and you, this idea of like stranger danger. So that's one of, when we talk about things to teach, that's one of my things to not teach. Um, because 93% of the time for, for kids, I'd have to relook at this exact statistics, but it's very close as well for, for adults is the person who sexually abuses or assaults a child is known to the victim. And, um, you know, so that that only leads 7% of the time where it's going to be somebody who's, um, like, known. Um, you know, 34% of the time it's family members and the other, like, almost 60% of the time it's, like, an acquaintance, right? So yeah. that, that includes yeah. people like coaches and teachers and care aides and, like, yeah. all of those folks who, you know, mm-hmm. we think of as, like, the safe, responsible people. So it, I always teach people and I and I try to redirect teachers and and parents and BCBA other BCBAs and RBTs and whatever to not teach about um, stranger danger or dangerous people but to teach about dangerous behavior because like your mom can be dangerous your uncle can be dangerous grandpa can be dangerous the kid next door can be dangerous your sibling can be dangerous or like for younger kids I call it tricky right so people are trying to be tricky and trick you into you know doing Mm -hmm. things but this idea of like fear and it's just way easier to think about a scary stranger harming somebody than it is to think about somebody who you've and particularly in the case of like education assistants or, you know, uh, yep. like other people that those people shouldn't be the people that um, we or we should be worried about. Right. And so but if you don't know and if you don't know the facts and you're worried about looking into it again, knowledge yep. kind of breeds fear and that breeds silence. And so then we yep. don't talk about it. Um, and again, like the, the, in the end, the people that are harmed are the people who are most vulnerable. Yeah. You know, yeah. And 
it's it's so interesting because I am somebody, I'll be honest, I am one of those BCBAs who have absolutely taught the difference between stranger danger, who is a safe person, who is a dangerous person, or, you know, and you bring up dangerous behaviors versus safe behaviors, which now I'm like thinking, okay, I need to go back and really teach my kids that because that is ultimately going to help, you know, the clients that I serve um, in yeah. the long run of knowing you know, how to encounter danger, um, a dangerous situation versus a safe situation. Um, so that being said, um, how do you teach the difference between safe and dangerous behaviors within sexual health? Yeah. I, so again, there's like a lot of individualization of like, what is the client's kind of like current situation, particularly if I'm working with kids that, you know, um, it takes them a little bit longer to learn things or they need lots of repetition or I really want to make it really meaningful to them. Um, and so some of that can be things like, you know, it, and what that can look like could be if we think of sort of like behavior skills training, like I'll do some sort of like description of that and then some sort of activity. I often I do a lot of like sorting activities where I'd be like, is this is this tricky or is this safe? And then I'll have like a, a picture if, if kids need pictures. The hard thing is like finding the pictures. <laughs> Sometimes it represents some of these things or right. words or act them out or whatever sort of the individual client, whatever their sort of level is and ask them, is it is that tricky or not or not tricky and kind of get them to sort it. And then do some like role playing only obviously things that would involve like no touching and, you know, continuing to maintain safety. Um, yeah. Which is, you know, if, if you think about like barriers to teaching, one of the barriers to teaching is that like you can't really expose people to the situation to see if they've mastered the skill. That would be like wildly unethical. Be like, you know, teaching a kid to cross the road and then like put shoving them out the door of the center and like good yeah. luck. And yeah. like if you come back, then it's master. Like you just, yeah. yeah, right, <laughs> right. So oh, you sort of have to like assess by you know some sort of like you know proxy measure right and kind of determine what that would be but um like some things that I'll say um like is that like adults shouldn't ask kids to keep secrets um or to like tell your yeah, if they if somebody yeah, says yeah. don't tell your mom you know is that tricky or is that safe if somebody says don't tell auntie tricky or safe those kinds of things that's like one of the big categories that I teach people is like um adults shouldn't ask kids to keep secrets Adults can ask kids to keep surprises. So like mom tells you to keep grandma's birthday yeah, party a surprise. That's it, yeah, yeah, right? That's not yeah. being tricky. But grandma saying, don't tell mom, you know, what your brother did when you were at my mm -hmm. house. That's mm -hmm. that's being that's being tricky. Um, yeah. You know, so some of those sorts of examples. And another thing is like adults shouldn't ask kids to help with adult problems. So they shouldn't ask them to help them find a lost, you know, some of the classic stranger danger examples, find a lost animal, help them to like have a shower, help them to get changed, yep. those kinds of things. Like those aren't things that adults need kids help with. Adults yeah. might need kids help with washing the dishes. That's safe. They might yeah. need help with. Right. And, and I also teach things like do does somebody need to touch your insert private body parts that the kid has? Um do they need to touch um, to like help you with wiping, you know, yes or no. The, like my three things are wiping, washing and help when hurt are like the three times when somebody should be allowed mm -hmm. to touch a child's genitals. 
And then I'll do yeah. other things like, do they need to touch your genitals to help you get dressed? No. To help you play games? No. To help you play sports? No. So just some examples. And I try to make them yeah. relevant to like what that kid is doing. Um, you know, and it is like a kind of a proxy measure because then I can't get somebody to be like, okay, go up and try to touch their vulva and we'll see if they've mastered the skill. Like, absolutely no. <laughs> yeah. So you, you just, you kind of have to, yeah, use these sort of proxy measures sometimes, which like, you know, can be hard for some BCBAs, I think, who are used to being like, you have to see the skill demonstrated five, four out of five times or whatever. Definitely requires some cognitive flexibility there, for sure. Yeah. Four out of five times. That's yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, no. It, when it involves things like that, I don't even want like 3% error. Like just looking mm -hmm. at that, I'm like, no, we, we got to target this for longer. We got it. And not just, you know, for five sessions or 10 sessions, like that needs to be maintained throughout life. Yeah. At the end of the day, that's your safety. Yeah. That's your and sometimes role playing those things too can be, you know, to, and that's a, a time to teach kids again, like a broad skill, even outside of these scenarios is teaching kids to say no and say no and stick to it. Some kids are quite good at that. They don't need work, but like some kids, some kids get very passive, right? Because, you know, for a variety of reasons, over prompting, blah, blah, blah. Um, or just like their no has been expected put on extinction right so like I say no I say no I say no no one ever listens so like what's the point I'm just never going to say it again and then now we've put this like self-care or self-preservation safety skill there's that great shirt that says like um um non-compliance is a is a social skill I think I would love it to say non-compliance is a safety skill um, mm -hmm. yeah. I love that Make that. Yeah. TM like look on T Public in a week. I'll make it. I don't know. <laughs> oh my gosh, I love that. Um, so I want to go ahead and throw out our first code word. Um, the first code word in our podcast is Bumblebee. B U M B L E B E E. That is Bumblebee. Um, you know, and you mentioned non-compliance and. And I'm really glad you did because that word was literally in my head as you were mm -hmm. talking about, you know, teaching kids to say no. But part of the issue that I have ran into is, and even just today, I read a treatment plan that said that this child's non-compliance episodes will be zero minutes long. And it took everything out of me not to absolutely mm -hmm. like scream <laughs> because, because, you know, everybody everybody is non-compliant to some extent and not to mention to, I guess, let me take that back. Um, a dead man can be non-compliant, but that being said, you know, we should be able to have the autonomy to say no, Absolutely. And, you know, yeah. to, to like, even if a child cannot vocally or an adult cannot vocally say no, they need to be able to indicate no to some extent. Yeah. And yeah. so that being said, um, that being said, you know, it's, it's just so interesting to me to hear, um, about like, you know, the fact that noncompliance can be still targeted as a quote unquote, um, behavior for reduction. And yet we have situations like this where a hundred percent compliance really should not exist, you know? No, no. Yeah. 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 I think we just really need to do like a better job. Well, I mean, you know, I think the ABA has some stuff to answer to in this regard. Mm -hmm. I'm not minimizing yeah. that for yeah. for sure. 
But also there's like other contingencies operating on our behavior. For me in particular, it's often when I'm working with schools who want the non-compliance to be to be zero, right? They want pe- kids to be c- kind of complying all the time, um, which it like may or may not, you know, be realistic. But and I and then I also think, um, you know, BCBAs and and people who are new to the field or you know are sort of trying to sort of work from a curriculum a lot. Um, and again, I think that's just a supervision sort of thing that that we need to be better at um, as as a field is looking at like something like the VB map or ABLES or something like that. And it's like, okay, well, I'll apply similar-ish criteria across the board. We don't get enough training in like what is developmentally expected. So like how often does a three-year-old have a have a, an, an instance of quote-unquote non-compliance? How long does it usually take a three-year-old to comply with an instruction? I had to do a correction with that with the supervisee a little while ago where I don't remember what they'd written, but it was something like we'll comply within a minute or with, you know, after one instruction or something. And I was like, no, I was like within 10 minutes and like 17 instructions would be like developmentally normal for this. They were like eight or I don't remember, but, you know, so I think that we're just not we're not really thinking about what compliance means and when compliance is and is not important um, and so I always I call them the whatabouts because whenever I give a presentation and I talk about assent and respect reinforcing a no right so we're not putting no on extinction people are saying well what about you know they refuse to wear warm clothes they're running onto the street they won't change their diaper they won't have a shower they won't take medication they're climbing on high places they refuse to go to school <laughs> you know this list right mm-hmm. yeah. um and it's sort of like, well, there are certain things for health and safety, but it doesn't mean that we can't try to find like we're behavior analysts. What are we really good at assessing the environment and figuring out the things that are impacting the behavior of the people we're supporting? So like, yep. but what is the issue? Is there a sensory sensitivity? Like I'm not wearing a winter coat because I don't have good interoception or like the tag on that new coat or my winter boots hurts or uh, you, my parents didn't realize that like changing the toothpaste from like winter mint to fresh mint meant that my mouth feels like it's on fire. Like what are some Mm -hmm. of the things that could be contributing to those no's? How can we make them easier? Can we embed some choice in there, right? Like we forget about some of these things um, as like skills that we've got. Like I think we just get caught up And again, I think we've got as BCBAs contingencies of people around us working on us being like, stop this thing, make this thing stop that I don't Mm -hmm. like, it's inconvenient for me, whatever. Um, But so we don't, then then we forget like our skills. (laughs) We forget what we're really good at. (laughs) It's true. I mean, you know, we always have to rule out environmental variables. We always have to rule out, um, you know, any sort of variable. And kind of speaking of that too, I want to go back a little bit um, to cultural considerations and teaching about sex. So that being said, um, you know, what are some things that from a cultural perspective, um, you've had this sort of keep in mind when teaching about sexual health? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great, like, um, thing to think about in terms of why compliance might be important for some people too, right? Respect for elders, not, you know, doing doing exactly what grandparents or parents or whatever says. Like, there's lo- there's so many reasons 
um, why that might be more or less valuable to a client or a client's family or stakeholders or, or whatever. So all of these issues are are complex, right? But yeah. when it comes to sexual health um stuff. I mean, I think a lot of that, the discomfort and, um, uh, you know, when I work with families from like a variety of different backgrounds and, and cultures, I live in like a, a, like relatively diverse part of Canada and like kind of major metropolitan area. So like most of my clients are, uh, you know, some, you know, have some sort of like intersectional diverse identities, um, that a lot of that, is back to what we were talking about before where like again it's thinking about like the contingencies that are operating on the family right so there's they've been you know sort of taught to have a lot of shame and fear around sexual health topics because of their background culture whatever so that's operating on them so then they don't know what to say and so then it's easier to sort of say nothing um or the expectation is for something to stop um what I find like most helpful working with families from a variety of different um, backgrounds and, and different value systems, whether that's cultural or religious or whatever, or just personal values, um, is that focus on like health and safety, because most families want those two things for their kids. So if people are finding like that, they think that this is kind of like a roadblock, like there's just no way talking with families about um the reasons why it's important from a health and safety perspective. So sort of saying, so one of my like top skills or things to kind of try to teach kids using language that's meaningful and accessible to them is the names of their body parts. And so people sort of think like, you know, why? And I always start with like, number one, why is like, if something hurts, we want kids to be able to say, like, I don't know how many times I've had families say, I just want him to be able to say if his stomach hurts, if his head hurts, if his you know, shoulder hurts or whatever. And so I'll just kind of sneak into that list like, yes, and like his like their genitals, like if they had a urinary tract infection or if he had a rash on his bum, like you'd want him to be able to tell you. So take it from like a medical perspective and lots of families will be like, oh, yeah, 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 that makes sense. Like I'm comfortable with that. The secondary thing is like safety. So, you know, this means like if your kid can name those things to say if something's wrong, and again, that could be like non-vocal responding with like pointing to a picture. Like there's lots of different ways that can look. Um, they can say if something happened to them, right? If somebody touched them um, or if somebody showed them their body part, which is another reason why I think it's important for people to learn all of the parts that people could have because somebody could show a body part to a kid. Um, like, you know, if you have a vulva, but somebody exposes their penis, you want to be able to say that they showed you their penis because that's still, uh, you know, a type of abuse against a, a child uh, yeah. and an assault against anybody if they're exposing genitals without consent. Um, yeah. And so health and safety are good inroads. Um, oftentimes I'll, I'll work with families um, and they will come to me because they've they have a child who's like engaging in either like disrobing or like genital touching or, or masturbation um, in public places. And so we'll talk about like needing to kind of work on public and private and teaching them um, yeah. the importance of being private because it creates a vulnerability. So I'll sort yeah. of say like if, you know, your child is taking their clothes off in public places or touching their genitals in public places, it signals to people around them that they don't understand the social rules and what and that that's not acceptable. And that, you know, so it, it creates a vulnerability for people who might, you know, be seeking 
to cause harm. Um, I don't really think that there's as much of the kind of creeping around in the bushes stranger danger, but but there is the people that are close to people wanting, you know, unfortunately, um, you know, taking advantage of that power that they have over a child or a disabled person. Um, and so that's something as well. Um, you know, sometimes it's even about saying, you know, sexual health education is important to teach or like teaching masturbation and self-discovery is important because, you know, I'm hearing from your family, like when I've done an intake or whatever, that like them not having sexual contact with other people is very important to you from a religious or cultural standpoint. And so if we can teach them the value of keeping this thing private, the less that they're going to go out and try to seek that contact with somebody else that feel that I'm hearing from you is, is something that, you know, you, you don't, um, that isn't aligned with your family values. And so kind of stuff like that sometimes can help families be like, Oh, okay. I see like you do understand what's important to me. Um, and you're hearing what I'm saying about my concerns in this area. So it's like, it's a lot about like listening to, and not just like thinking that you have the answers to those questions. Another thing we see to get better at in general listening yeah and you know we've talked a lot about sort of like the um boundary breaking more of the um you know like the almost bad and traumatic side but now I kind of want to flip the switch or flip the script a little bit because you know disabled people you know as um as a disabled person and you know as I've worked with more and more disabled person and I've known more and more disabled people um you know, disabled people want to know that they can also feel love and they can also feel um, mm-hmm. they, they can also discover themselves and they can also go into relationships. Of course, it's up to the person. But that being said, you know, I have met people who just want to have a boyfriend or a girlfriend or um, yeah. a partner and they want to be able to do these like sexual inter- like have sexual interactions with them right. at some point so how do we go about teaching somebody um that really is just very interested in building those um how That's would you say question, and of course it, it goes back to individualization but what are some tips and tricks on like what we can do to ultimately help them realize, hey, you know, it is okay to have these feelings and how do you go about that? Yeah, totally. And I think there is, you know, like a space here to kind of shout out like a scope of competence sort of thing too, right? Where like there are some things around um, sexual health, especially for thinking about, you know, using and choosing different kinds of birth control that you like, you need a certain level of education around that to be able to, to pass that information to a client. Um, you know, it, do you know how to teach dating skills? Like, is that something that you feel competent in? Do you understand dating like online versus offline? You know, do you, do you understand the ways that, you know, and I think unfortunately there's a lot of curriculums for, some of those interpersonal sort of skills that are really based on a lot of like neurotypical ways of, of interacting and meeting people. And so, you know, what are, what are you really teaching? Um, so, you know, I do think that there, there is time and space to say like, maybe I'm not the best person to, to teach this, but I think there are some things, again, if we're looking at like, what are some things that BCBAs could teach, even if they're kind of like, ooh, I don't feel competent in sex education that might like still be be relevant 
as well. And then I'm happy to talk about like some of the things that I teach in that area, but things like understanding like emotions and then like kind of what to do with them. Right. So like it, understanding like what a crush is and, yeah. and then what to do with the, with those feelings. Um, you know, what, what we talked a bit about rejection. So what to do when somebody rejects you, um, what to do, um, for like, in like, interaction just like social skills generally is like another thing and like obviously social skills that are matched to the goals of the person who you're teaching the social skills to right um is also is also important um but i you know and some things that are are like figuring out what it is that you want so even sometimes it's just education around like what are the different kinds of relationships that people can be in? And I will, you know, this has to be age appropriate or, or whatever. But if I'm working with like a later teen, I might say, or like young adult, it might be like, there's people that want like a partner that they're going to go on some dates with. And then they're, you know, they're going to decide that they're dating. And then like, what does that look like? But there's also people who want to just have like hookups, like they're just interested in, you know, and if there's somebody who's like a sensory seeker person and like sex is something that they really want for the sensation, but they don't really want the um, the social and like romantic interaction part or like that's too complicated for them. Like what the skills that you're teaching somebody to like safely like look for and hook up with people is different than the skills that you're going to teach somebody to, you know, get it set up a safe like Tinder profile and, and, and meet people and whatever. So those things have to be like very different and specific. Um, Yeah. Then there's, you know, and I, and I think it's also this thing of kind of like who's going to teach this and like having a, like a really, uh, you know, intentional conversation around, you know, is this is this the best role for like the BCBA, the RBT, whatever to teach? Are there some resources that we could give um, to to folks to explore on their own? Um, those kinds of things. So, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it now it really makes me wonder, too, like, let's say you have a teenager, an adult client that is really interested in having, you know, those types of relationships. Um, but, you know, you have a guardian who is completely against that whatsoever. They're like, absolutely not. Um, not under my house, not under my roof. Um, I know, um, you know, guardianships do exist. And so like their guardian might say, no, like we're not teaching that. I do not want that to happen. How do you address that? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, again, I think um, often I will try to, to point to safety, but I'll ask sort of like what their fears are. Um, And so try to get an understanding of where that's coming from. If those people are sort of like assigned female or like could could have a baby, pregnancy comes up often, like I don't want them to get pregnant. And so it's like, well, you know, could we what about some education around birth control options? Um, You know, people are generally have this worry that like if you tell somebody about sex that they're going to want to go have it. If you tell somebody about birth control or put them on birth control or then they're going to think that that's like a license to go kind of like have sex. But like there's not really any evidence to suggest that that's true. You know, sexual health decisions in autistic or disabled populations are like under sort of studied. Um, but generally in the general population, we know that education around those things actually creates safety um, and creates like 
um, prolonging the decision to like engage in sex with somebody else, you know, lower rates of sexually transmitted infections, those sorts of things. Um, and so usually I'll bring it back to safety and it's sort of like, well, if we're not, if you're not sort of allowing them to explore this safely, what you're doing is sort of creating uh, like a da- potentially dangerous situation um, where you're, um, you're saying that that person also can't come to you if something does happen, right? Because right. you're sort of shutting down this this discussion. So now if they are exploring or if they do have a question, they're not going to come to you because they know your answer is immediately shut down. So some of that becomes like more parent education for sure. Um, it depend again, individualization, but depending on the situation, it's like people, you know, I've worked with some people who have like, had contact with like the police because they got found like having sex in a public place because neither of the people's partners were like allowed to, to go to their respective like group home or residential resource or, or family home or whatever. And so they're, they're doing it in a way that's more risky and more dangerous. So a lot of it just becomes like safety planning really. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. You know, you bring up, so many like good points about safety within sex. And, you know, I know, um, I know like I'm flipping the script a little bit, but at the same time, I'm really glad that you're bringing this up because, you know, as a behavior analyst that works with a variety of people, not just children, but people in general, you know, these skills are so socially significant and it's really good to kind of hear like, you know, how you've done this and how like we as the BCBA community can really help our children with that. Um, And so one of the one of the things that I was thinking about, as you mentioned, you know, um, outsourcing in the event that you just you're not able to provide that teaching because of your scope of competence. What are some resources that you've had to give to families to address this? Yeah, I I mean, like me. (laughs) (laughs) I guess what are some resources in general that yeah 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 totally yeah um so there's um there's a great sort of series of books um the author is Kate Reynolds um and and people are probably familiar with like what does Tom like or things Tom likes things Ellie likes um which are books about um learning about masturbation and rules around masturbation what's happening to Tom what's happening to Ellie which are great for like teens. Um, some the pictures I'll often have to sort of change, but they're a good resource. One of the like my favorite resources, and um, I'll tell you the caveat after, but she has a book that's more been out in the last three or so years, I think, called What is Sex? And it actually has like line drawing pictures of like various kinds of sex. So like vaginal sex, what does it look like? Anal sex, what does it look like? Oral sex, what does it look like? consent and and like not consent in terms of like two people like pictures of them together so you can kind of read body language yeah Um, which is fantastic for showing people like what it what sex actually is like it's so hard to describe um to people and I get questions like often in like general ed sex ed classes where kids are just like yeah but what does it look like so everyone tells me like sex is like a hand and a penis or like a mouth and a vulva or penis and vagina is like more commonly what people immediately think of but I have a very broad definition of sex um 
but like, what does it actually look like? Like, what are they actually doing? And the kids are curious. And then this is how people like go searching online and find pornography when they're like at an age when they don't have the information to understand. So like, however, like I, that book is like graphic, not like explicit. It's made for education. But I would yeah. say that's a book that like I talk with families about before I show it to kids. I would not recommend that like a random BCBA without you know a good discussion with with family or certainly a teacher given the current like political climate ever showed to a kid um but and I'll and I'll say things to if I'm working with like a teen um and I use it as like a harm reduction strategy right like they want to know what sex looks like and if a kid wants to know what sex looks like they're sure as shoot gonna find out online so it's like I like here's this other thing I'm gonna I'm gonna show you but I'll say to the show the family and say, like, I want to use this picture to to describe to them. And then I say something along the lines of I'm going to show you some pictures, if you're OK with it, of line drawings of people sharing their bodies and having sex. Um, yeah. Your parents know that we're your guardian or your auntie, your grandma, whoever know that that I'm going to show you these pictures. They said that it's OK because these pictures are for learning. Are you OK with looking at the pictures? 99% of the time, teenagers are like, yes, 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 yes. Oh, <laughs> um, well, yeah, because it's something that they're so curious about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so though that book is great. She's got another one called, like, What is Pregnancy? Another one that I love it called What is Menopause? For anybody who's working with, like, older um, people that might go through menopause. And they're all designed for autistic people. Like, very simple language, very clear pictures um they're excellent so any of those books by Kate Reynolds um are fabulous um there's a great online resource from the organization for autism research um called the sex ed for self-advocates there's a, a podcast with it as well um and I would say for most of the people that I support, they need somebody to go through it with them. If somebody has really strong, like, uh, reading comprehension skills, um, they could go go through it on their own. Um, but that's another, uh, like, really great resource or just a good resource for um, people to get the basic information about, like, what should be taught about a variety of topics from puberty all the way to dating. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I, I had to write that down just for myself because, <laughs> you know, it just, it, these these are really good resources. And, you know, it's, it's funny too, because um, we've talked about, you, you talked about how sex looks different. Um, and, you know, it's, it goes beyond, you know, like just like a penis and a vagina, but even like, you know, if you find yourself with a client that wants to explore things with the same gender or, you know, with someone who's transgender or someone who is non-binary, you know, there's a lot of different circumstances in which, you know, you might see sex is going to look different mm-hmm. for everybody, you know? And it's another, like, I know, like, I come back to, like you said, I come back to the safety thing a lot. I think there's a few reasons for that. Like, it's very reinforcing for me historically, because that is often what gets people to be like, oh, yeah, I can do this, or I can talk about this, or I care about safety, is that in an age-appropriate way, it's also important for kids to know what sex is. You don't have to call it sex, but that, like, that if we define sex as penis and vagina, then if somebody is a kid and somebody makes them touch their breasts, vulva, penis, 
that's hand and penis. And if we don't know that that's included in sex or for really young kids, you can just call it things that kids don't do, right? Yeah. Don't touch each other's um, body parts. They don't have to know that it's called sex. That's fine. But they should know that like those are the things that like if somebody makes you do that, that's when you should talk, tell a safe adult, right? But if, right. if people just think, and this is a problem like just more broadly in terms of like rape culture and things like that is that People, if they think that like sexual assault is only like penis and vagina, like forceful, I was screaming no, then they're missing, you know, 99.9% of what sexual assault actually is, right? Um, it's it's freezing and not not being able to to say or do anything. It's somebody touching your buttocks or breasts. So we like if we define if we make an operational definition of sex that's very broad, um, it it's very helpful on like a number of levels, safety kind of among them. Yeah. You know, this has been such an informative episode and I'm really glad that we're having this discussion, um, you know, because I know for, for me personally, like I'm so many wheels are turning <laughs> and I'm really hoping, I'm really hoping that our listeners are kind of thinking the same thing, you know, it's not just about like teaching sex. It's about teaching safety. It's about teaching these really important skills. Um, so my last question that I want to end with is what is your advice for those um, BCBAs, BCABAs um, to sort of like, you know, help them um, learn a little bit more about not only sex, um, how we can teach sex, but also too, what can BCBAs do to ultimately um, realize or like promote? you know, what um, promote sex ed in their practice? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I think that like, well, I mean, if you made it through this episode without being like, I can't handle talking about this topic and turning it off, like there, you did it. That's a great, great start. Great start. Um, I recommend podcasts all the time to like parents and professionals, because I think it's a good way to like, um, kind of, you know, privately, right, you can be pretty covert about it, L learn a bit more about this topic or kind of push your bound, like your boundaries of, of, um, of your kind of comfort and just, just even listening to, to the conversation, right? So if like, this is brand new to you, like, yeah, you listen to this podcast, listen to some other podcasts that are about sexual health topics. And, you know, th and there's, I mean, they're, gosh, the world of podcasts, like shameless plug. I have a podcast called Sex Ed Book Review, where myself and another um, sex um, educator and NBCBA, Barb Gross, we go, we review sex education books, talk about what's good about them, what's not. And we interview authors and stuff. So like that is like we think like a fairly accessible in um, there's a few other great um, like if you Google like sex podcast, I mean, look and try something and turn it on and see if it works for you. Like Dan Savage's, you know, Savage Love podcast talking about, you know, kink and all kinds of stuff like might feel like a bridge too far for you. So just like, you know, there's all kinds of flavors out there. So I think podcasts are a great place. It's easier than like getting a book right from like the library and then everybody knows what book you're reading or ebooks are like a better way to do that. Um, so definitely just that sort of thing, following some accounts on like social media, uh, like Instagram and stuff like that, 
There's a great one called Sex Positive Families that I refer people to all the time. It's not disability um, specific, but they've got great little, they have really short, succinct ways to talk about various topics that I think does lend itself well to sometimes people thinking like, well, I can't have these complex conversations with the kids that I'm supporting because their language or their attention span or or what name whatever variable is like currently a barrier um to work on addressing that barrier I guess but also like I think their content works pretty well to um translate for for people that we might support that that need a little bit more support and understanding uh language so those those are good ones for sure um yeah, I think that those are two, like, yeah, social media, I mean, be wary of, like, just general, like, social media sex etiquette. Less so on Instagram, I find. TikTok is, like, you know, you really got to know what you're looking at to know whether it's good advice or not. Um, there's definitely some, like, autist, like lots of autistic self-advocates that are comfortable talking about sex. Um, that OAR sex ed, um, Amy Gravino um, is a autistic self advocate that talks about sexuality and that she works in that space almost entirely. Um, I've got a, we've got a two day conference that's going to be web live streamed coming up in November. I can send you the link for that, but myself, Amy uh, and another professional um, are doing kind of like a two day workshop about sexual health and autism. So that could be another place for people to get some info. No CE like, B-A-C-B-C-E-U's for that, but um, yeah, and there's like other books like The Autistic Woman's Guide to Being Safe with Men, like there, there's tons of resources out there for for folks, for sure, to, especially learning, I think, from autistic people about their experiences um, is definitely like invaluable. Wow, that, thank you so much, and thank you for being on this episode with us, you know, um, I've learned so much and I know that our learners and listeners have absolutely learned a lot as well. Um, Before we wrap up, I do want to give the second and last code word and that code word is birds, B-I-R-D-S, birds. Um, And Landa, before we sign off tonight, um, where can we find you? You mentioned having a podcast, which by the way, incredible. Um, but where can we find you on social media? Um, where can we contact you if we ever have any questions, anything like that? Yeah, for sure. Um, people can find me on Instagram at Positive Connections with my very, very poorly updated, <laughs> trying to balance uh, being working full time, being back in school full time and posting some Instagram content. Um, but uh, on uh, Positive Connections on Instagram, um, the podcast is on Instagram too at sex ed book review. Um, my website is positiveconnections.ca. People can see on there sort of like workshops that I offer. Um, and there's like a contact me form. People can book consultations with me. I've got like a 15 minute pick my brain console. That's just like it, it's $15 for 15 minutes because my time is valuable, but, <laughs> um, <laughs> because people ask a lot for to just pick my brain. So I made that. So people just want to have like a a chat to be like, I'm thinking about this thing or whatever. And that's on there. I always say if if somebody's pursuing certification or is not yet certified or is wanting to explore how to um, 
you know, merge these fields of sexual behavior and ABA. Um, I, I'll give my time for free to folks who um, are pr- like pursuing the, the idea. Um, yeah, so people can find me there. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much, Landa. It was an absolute pleasure um, speaking with you tonight. And we um, we are so excited to have had you. Um, so this is Michelle Zeman and Mackenzie Welch signing off and launching into space. We'll see you on the next episode. Bye, everyone. <laughs>